I'm Teresa Mangum. I'm a faculty member at the university, and I'm the director of the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies. And since we often work with community partners, our mayor, Jim Throgmorton, was kind enough to ask me to moderate today. So first, I'd like to thank all of you for being here. I hope we'll have some others uh, wandering in as lunch allows them. And to thank Jim Throgmorton for this really wonderful idea of bringing together four mayors <clears throat> from smaller cities to talk about what's uh, what being a mayor has been like the last year, what cities have been accomplishing in the last year, and what's working well in their communities, as well as what they see coming up in the future. So our plan for today, let me just give you a quick overview is that we thought I'll, I'll make very, very brief, two brief introductions to our guests, and then I'll ask each of our mayors to speak briefly, talking about a few challenges and exciting opportunities, and I will have the unhappy task of reminding you of time. So we'll assume each person will speak for about 10 minutes, and I'll kind of flag you if, if we're getting uh, beyond the 10 minutes. And um, we'd especially like to know about one program, one uh, effort that you have underway that you're feeling uh, is really working, is really constructive and benefiting the community. And then after we have that brief overview, we'll open the audience, open for questions and welcome all of you to ask questions and also for the mayors, of course, to, um, to ask questions of one another. So let me introduce all four of our uh, speakers and then, then we'll start start in alphabetical order. Ron Corbett, next to me, is the mayor of Cedar Rapids. He has had a number of careers leading to being mayor. He's been an insurance agent, co-founder of an ice cream company. That sounds fabulous. Um, a seven-term member of the Iowa House and president of the Cedar Rapids Chamber of Commerce, as well as um, vice president of a, of a business. And he's in his second term as mayor. And just to give us all a little context, I've used one source for population of each city, and I will warn you, you probably will hear challenges to the numbers. All I can tell you is that these are all from the same, uh, the same census source, so I'll let y'all correct me. Um, but in 2016, the population of Cedar Rapids from this estimation was about 126,300 people. And also to give you a context, the government system in Cedar Rapids is a seven-member city council Council with a city manager who helps serve as an administrative officer. Um, Quentin Hart, next, is the mayor of Waterloo. He's been the associate director of multicultural affairs for Hawkeye Community College. May, uh, in Waterloo, the population last year was about 68,500, and the system there, they have seven city councilors plus the mayor and a city manager. Third in line, I hope that's right. No that's, city manager. No city manager. Sorry about that. Uh, third in line is Paul Soglin from Madison, Wisconsin, who has a background in history and law. He has served, I think, nine discontinuous terms as mayor in cumulatively about 20 years. Madison has a population, or did last year, according to this census, of about 233. But like the University of Iowa here in, in Iowa City, that population swells when students are in town. And um, the government 
government system there in Madison is a mayor council, larger, of about 20 members, and the t a task force is currently looking at that structure. So that'll be interesting to hear about. And then finally, our own mayor, Jim Throgmorton, who's a retired professor of urban and regional planning from the university. And uh, he is in his second term as mayor, discontinuous terms. And we have a seven-member city council and a city manager uh, who acts as the administrative officer, as well as the mayor. And our population last year was 67,800. Teresa, could I make one sure. minor uh, correction? Mm -hmm. uh, I've been on the council in a discontinuous way for uh, eight years. I've served as mayor for almost two years, and my term started back in early 2016. Okay. Is this, but is this your second term as mayor? Uh, no, it's my Just first your first term. term. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. This tells you how difficult web research really is. Um, so if you'll start us off with an uh, introduction of what's, what are the challenges you faced this last year and what's working? All right, well, thank you. Again, my name is Ron Corbett, mayor of Cedar Rapids. Just completing my second term, we have four-year terms in the city of Cedar Rapids and currently are uh, in the process of selecting the next mayor. We had our general election in November, but since no candidate got uh, over 50% plus one, we have a runoff uh, next uh, Tuesday. But after next Tuesday, I'll begin the process of passing off the baton to the next mayor, but I want to thank the mayor of Iowa City for uh, planning this event. Look forward to visiting with each of you on some questions of Cedar Rapids and some challenges of our community. As I look at uh, Cedar Rapids, maybe more from the rearview mirror, as I'll be leaving uh, the mayor's office and maybe a little bit of a elder statesman uh, position, uh, as I look, f uh, look at the future for our community, I look uh, maybe at four specific areas for our town that uh, need to either be addressed or confirmed or maybe some directions uh, even changed. The, one, the first one has to do with, with planning. Cedar Rapids, uh, historically, like a lot of communities, saw its growth uh, geographically by expanding its boundaries and would uh, go through the process of annexing land and making the state or making the city bigger as its geographical area. Um, a lot of people refer to that uh, term as urban sprawl. After the flood of, of 2008, we had a chance to re-examine how our community was going to grow. Since most of our core was devastated uh, from the floodwaters and the city was in the process of purchasing land, either land that was owned by business, uh, in many cases it was land owned by homeowners, we had this uh, choice to, I guess, rebuild from the inside out. And we've seen a lot of success with uh, rebuilding our core. And there's still a lot of land available to redevelop uh, from the core. But now we're starting to get external pressure from developers that actually own most of the land on the perimeter. That's normally traditionally what happens is developers uh, speculate. They purchase land on the perimeter of the, of the community. And uh, that's going to be a, 
an issue that our city council and next mayor are going to have to address. Do we continue to focus on infill, building from the inside out, or do we go back to the more traditional way of, of growing a city, and that's looking at expanding the geographical boundaries or some, some type of blend? Our second uh, challenge facing our community is just the overall, what I would say, uh, workforce, the availability of the workforce, and specifically our effort, as in many communities' efforts, to retain our young people and attract more young people to our community. It isn't exclusively just young people. It's really a, a general workforce issue for Cedar Rapids. As we've taken this approach of being open for business, we've seen a lot of our existing uh, companies grow and expand, and that's healthy for for any community because your economy is expanding and, and jobs are being created. But with our unemployment rate at really uh, too low, it's at 3, 3.1%, our business community is now struggling to find, find workers. And we're starting to see more of a churn uh, with uh, employees moving from company to company. And just recently, we've had uh, two potential uh, businesses that were looking at locating in, in the Cedar Rapids area. Uh, they declined to locate in Cedar Rapids because of their, their fear, really, of finding uh, available uh, workers. So that's a general concern, but more specifically, we, uh, our effort and challenge to keep our young people and attract our young people as urban areas in Cedar Rapids uh, and other urban areas, we've been successful at uh, building a pipeline from the rural parts of the state where young people will move in from the rural parts of the state into the urban parts. Uh, that pipeline is really starting to slow down because of the depopulation of, of rural Iowa. So that just puts greater challenge on, on us as a uh, urban area to be much more aggressive at attracting a workforce. Uh, number three, our, our largest employer in Cedar Rapids is Rockwell Collins. And Rockwell not only employs 6,000 plus uh, people, uh, many of those uh, engineers, there's a supporting supply network to Rockwell. And with the recent purchase of Rockwell by United Technologies, and whenever you have a company purchasing another company, there's always going to be uh, synergies and efficiencies that are that try to be found in, in the system. And so for uh, our largest employer uh, now not having a corporate headquarters in our community and the corporate headquarters in Connecticut, that is uh, a major concern because it can have such a ripple effect if uh, things go south versus north. And then uh, the final issue facing our community, and again, this is probably similar than what most of the mayors will say, is uh, infrastructure. And when I use the term uh, infrastructure and people hear infrastructure, they normally think uh, infrastructure of roads and bridges and water, uh, storm sewer, et cetera. And that's true. Those are all eligible for that definition. But when I think of infrastructure, I also think of your arts, culture, and entertainment as an infrastructure because the 
oftentimes when, when people look to move to a community, they just assume that when they move into the house, the toilet will flush and the faucet will uh, turn on in the morning. They're looking at other aspects from a quality of life. And so it's important for, for us as a community to understand that we're competing for people uh, and uh, focusing on that infrastructure that's broader than what uh, most people think as your traditional infrastructure. And then finally, one uh, project that, uh, that we've worked on that I think was success successful, and this was really something that we uh, developed during the, <clears throat> during the post-flood. After the, the flood of, of 2008, there's a lot of uh, angst in the community and people look to uh, the government to help solve some of the challenges and the issues. And oftentimes government can get hasty in how they uh, make decisions and elected officials sometimes feel that they have to make top-down decisions. And the problem with uh, top-down decisions is if there isn't any community buy-in or community uh, support, uh, those decisions really aren't sustainable because there's no ownership in it. And we learned from the flood that you, the decisions needed to be made from the bottom up, the grassroots, in, uh, including uh, citizens. So we spent a lot of time in, in community planning and a lot of meetings with, with citizens especially those uh, neighborhoods that were affected, the core neighborhoods affected by the flood. And it was a very rewarding uh, process for the elected officials and the city uh, employees that deal with the development, but it was also beneficial because citizens were involved in rebuilding their community. And it gave them that sense of ownership my city manager always tells me that nobody ever washes a rented car, but they'll wash the one they own. And it's all about pride and ownership. And in 2016, in the September, when we were faced with the highest, second highest crest, tens of thousands of people showed up to save the city. The reason they did is because they had ownership in the recovery and the rebuilding. And it was that, uh, planning process model that we've been incorporating now post-recovery for other neighborhoods. For example, Mount Vernon Road is a, uh, a main thoroughfare in our community, the south part of town, and we're bringing people together there to do some planning on what they want to see the whole Mount Vernon Road um, redevelopment effort look like. We're working with the college neighborhood is where Coe College and Mount Mercy are located, and we're uh, doing the same thing, having this grassroots community planning process. So I would say those are um, uh, two examples of flood recovery efforts that we made that we've continued to implement in other neighborhoods in the community that have been very successful. Thank you very much, right, Mayor. Thank Hart. you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Is this on? Can you hear me? <clears throat> Uh, and I want to thank you uh, for allowing me to have this opportunity to, to, to travel here and for all your work and efforts as well, uh, mayors, and to the other mayors on the panel, thank you. Thank you also. Um, what can I say? I'm, I was uh, born and raised in the city of Waterloo. 
parents came from down south and came to Waterloo because uh, they heard about work being in the city. Uh, I heard about John Deere's and all those opportunities uh, that they would have to be able to find employment and to raise a family. So I'm born out of their work ethic and uh, all the work they've done. Um, I did have the opportunity prior to becoming mayor two years ago to serve on the Waterloo City Council. I served eight years as a council member. Um, six of those years were I served as uh, mayor pro tem. Uh, for the city of Waterloo. And as was mentioned earlier, um, currently there is no city manager for the city. So I get an opportunity to do anything from uh, shoveling and picking up garbage to working with some of the larger economic deals that we have uh, within our community. And so um, for the last two years, it has been one of the most incredible experiences that I could ever have. I think I, I've, I've heard someone say, um, I, don't, I don't have to go to work. I get to go to work every day and work uh, for the place that I was born and raised. Um, reasons why I ran uh, for mayor, uh, some, some challenges we've had. Uh, when you take a look at um, our city in some instances, you know, I didn't necessarily see uh, economic development taking places throughout our entire community. It seems um, that some areas had some challenge with growth, uh, with a, a little bit of dilapidation, um, but I wanted to see things kind of change for the entire community. Uh, another reason I ran was because of uh, taking a look at what was taking place with regards to um, crime within our community and seeing what I can do to bring parties together to work collectively as an entire community to, to make some changes. Uh, when we took a look at our neighborhoods and the disconnectivity, um, I wanted to work to try to make sure that all neighbors and neighborhoods had a voice um, in our direction moving forward. Um, also, when we take a look at the image for the city of Waterloo, you know, I lived there and born there, raised there, um, but the image that in some instances were seen outside of our community um, was not the same image that is actually happening and, and what's actually taking place. So I wanted to take a look at, at those few areas and see what I can do to make those particular changes. And so ended up running, winning, and then all of a sudden now you have to actually make those things happen that you claim <laughs> during the, the campaign trail. Um, but, you know, we, we have probably had, um, you know, thank God, two of the most successful years um, that we've had in a long time. Uh, our city, I think Governor Branstead coined the, the city of Waterloo one of the best comeback stories uh, in the state of Iowa during his condition of the state um, presentation last year. And that was really special because if you take a look at what happened in the 80s, we lost about 12,000 people. We went from about 80 to about 66, 67,000 people. Um, those numbers over the course of the last uh, three to four years from our earliest earliest um, uh, census information uh, is trending up around 70,000 to 71,000. So we've seen some great things taking place. Um, but over the course of the last two years, uh, with regards to economic development, um, and just like all the mayors up here, 
Um, we've seen some great opportunities taking place, or I've seen some great opportunities within the community. There's blighted areas where uh, we are starting to go into those areas and utilize different tools to be able to create change and opportunity in those areas. Um, we've been able to continue to expand our our uh, horizons within our community. The city of Waterloo out of the top 10 cities probably is second or third with the most amount of agricultural land that's within those areas. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-agriculture, but th there's opportunities to, to develop um, our city and expand our tax base. Um, Last year was one of the largest years that we had on record for permitted valuations, which is uh, really a really good sign uh, about where we're headed at in the future. With regards to our um, neighborhood services and in those areas and connecting neighbors, uh, we've been able to hire or in the processes of hiring a full-time coordinator that's bringing people together within our community. Over the course of this last national night out, just, just one benchmark, um, we have a tool that we use with our community foundation with regards to small community-wide grants. You know, proud to report that more of our neighborhoods associations have participated, finding grant funding, utilizing those tools for different services than we have ever had at any particular time in our city. So we're becoming more organized, creating more opportunities. With regards to um, crime, um, the city of Waterloo since the year of 2009 has seen a 34% trend downward with regards to crime. Uh, we have um, worked hard. We have worked with our law enforcement in our community because if there's no trust, then it's very hard to be able to solve crimes because solving crime and dealing with issues is not only the job of our law enforcement, but it's also the job of our community to be able to step up. And so our police officers have gone through implicit bias training so that they can understand the community that they serve a little bit better. Uh, they created a uh, Waterloo Police Foundation that's focused on community engagement activities uh, where we can partner with different partners in our community and help support them as well. Um, we've created an ex-offender task force because we have many people within our community that have made a mistake 15, 20 years ago that want to be re-engaged and be part of the solutions. So we created opportunities for that. Our use of force numbers are down to record numbers over the course of the last year or two. So we've been able to see some steady shifts and trends within our law enforcement, which leads me to um, talking about the image for the city of Waterloo. Um, you know, when you ask someone sometimes, they may say Waterloo and th there could possibly be a stigma. But if you take a look at just overall crime and safety within our communities, our numbers are trending down in the correct manner. Um, when you take a look just across the board, for instance, you know, one life is too many lives to lose um, in the streets. Um, those numbers are down for our community. We've been able to create grassroots projects like one called Project Pause, where we work with our sheriff's department, our law enforcement, and community members and hip hop artists to put visual expressions of the impacts that rash and brass decisions may have on the rest of your life. 
And so we also hired a, a communications director that is working to help get out the real story of who we are as a community. So when you take a look at our city, uh, it's a comeback city, but there is a new story that needs to be told about the place that, that I was born and raised in, and we're starting to get that information out to people. And a project that I'm exceptionally uh, happy about is uh, the Walnut Redevelopment Project. And this was an existing, um, existing area within our city that had seen a lot of blight over the years. There was no commercial development. Um, the housing stock in that area was um, pretty much challenged. But uh, the Neighborhood Association and the churches in that area and Habitat for Humanity and some of our, uh, one of our developers, a couple of our developers actually had come together and said, we're going to change the outcome for this neighborhood. So it didn't necessarily come from us, um, but we were there to support and it is just an incredible project. Um, there's a grocery store we'll be breaking ground on in February and we hadn't seen a grocery store in this particular area, probably uh, at least a new one, in the last 20 to 30 years. So that's taking place. You know, hardware stores, houses are being fixed up, being renovated in this area. And we're going to also tell the story about the historical aspects of this community. So these types of initiative projects are taking place. And I'm excited about it. It's a great time to be uh, mayor for the city of Waterloo. And we're not going to tap the brakes. We're going to continue to move forward, continue to work with partners, and continue to take a grassroots approach to solving some of the issues and the challenges that we see um, on a daily basis. Thank you. That was my timer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, when, when Eleanor Roosevelt passed away, Adlai Stevenson, who had been the governor of Illinois and the Democratic candidate for president in 1952 and 56, remarked about her that she would rather light a candle than curse the darkness. And I think that's the attitude that we need today in terms of confronting uh, the problems. We have a choice of, of either uh, wringing our hands and complaining uh, about problems, oftentimes not necessarily of our own making, or confronting the challenges that they, they present. Now, Maslow had his hierarchy of, of needs, and what we have found is that there's typically five areas where a family has uh, essential needs, and that to have a sustainable household, while depending on the nature of the, the family, you might not need all five, they do have to be addressed at a municipal level. Uh, the first is housing, and, and I'll come back to that in a moment. The second is transportation. The third is quality child care. The fourth is health. And I want to stop for a moment and say that when we discuss health, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about substance abuse, we're talking about confronting trauma, and we're talking about nutrition. If you were to ask a school teacher, what is the greatest impediment during the course of a day to a child learning? We're not talking about external factors outside of the classroom, but the child is in the classroom. It is going to be hunger. While we're on that, that subject, uh, there also ought to be noted 
that the quality of the food is, is critical. And we should note that as a mayor, it's my view that there is nothing we can do in terms of strengthening our cities that's as important as ensuring that we have a quality public school system. Uh, along with education, transportation, quality child care, uh, and, and housing comes the whole uh, continuum of education and employment. And in those five areas, we have responsibilities oftentimes vested in other institutions, but to ignore them uh, is, is, is to really waste opportunity within our communities. I'd also suggest that we take a look at the recent RFP put out by Amazon. While not a great number of cities in this country are truly competitive as Amazon looks for a uh, second headquarters, the content of that RFP gives us a good indication as to the direction of businesses in the United States as we go into this century. And it is oftentimes in conflict with political decisions, political decisions that are not just made at the municipal, but also at the state level. And let me just comment on one area uh, where we see this, and that has to do with transportation. Amazon is making it very clear that it expects its campus to be accessible from not just public transportation, but by standards of what we refer to as walkability accessible for pedestrians and accessible by bicycle. And yet, as we look around the country, uh, many decisions are being made in our own state of Wisconsin. Uh, we recently lost the ability to condemn right away for non-motor vehicle use. That's the only way now we can condemn, which means if Amazon were to come to Wisconsin, and they wanted bicycle routes into the campus, we couldn't accommodate them. Speaking of public transportation, let's stop for a moment and also observe that when we make judgments about the expenditure of public monies, we have to look at the externalities. There isn't a viable public transit system in the country that is profitable. Public transportation does not make money. When you take the revenues that come in from the passengers and you take the expenditures that go out for everything from, from fuel to equipment and service vehicles, public transit doesn't work. But then when you start looking at the ledger for other public activities, and those could be not having to build additional lanes of highway, not having to maintain them, the environmental consequences, and what we've learned in regards to the enhanced value of development at transit hubs, we begin to see the, the advantages that are not just to the rider, but to the larger community, the larger society. In, in regards to housing, I think it shouldn't be lost upon us, uh, the concept which is now come out of Arizona, come out of Utah, the notion of housing first. 
the concept that if you have other critical needs or deficits, that the challenge is to first provide housing. You cannot say to a homeless individual, deal with your unemployment, deal with your substance abuse, your mental illness, or whatever other challenges, your, your mismatch between your employment skills and the jobs available, and then we will get you housing. It works the other way around. And we've got enough examples coming out of Salt Lake City, coming out of Phoenix, uh, to show housing first is the solution, not only in terms of addressing the problem of homelessness, but also in regards to, to the needs of the larger community in terms of, of, of building a safe and healthy place. With that, uh, I'd also recommend, if not already done, examining the whole concept of placemaking. Uh, we can find its roots in Jane Jacobs' book, uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. We can see it in the work of uh, William Holly White, who uh, wrote uh, a book called Cities uh, and founded the Project for Public Spaces, PPS. But we've got to understand that a place is not the physical asset. It is the people. And you can get that concept fairly easily just thinking right now that whether you're watching this discussion or a motion picture in this, in this very room. If you were the only person in the audience, you would have a sense of loss about the activity. If you were to go and enjoy the Grand Canyon or to examine the uh, monument at the World Trade Center, while there may be an advantage for a moment in the solitude, the real appreciation is sharing it with other people. And it's that sense of place that then provides the dynamic, particularly as we're looking to millennials and, 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 and trying to understand their needs. It is that sense of place that is driving cultural, cultural and, and, and economic progress. With that, just to, to pick on one thing where we focused in Madison, uh, I'd like to come back to housing. The, the motto, which is a negative, which I don't particularly like, but it makes the point, is we do not want to become a San Francisco. We do not want to have the gentrification. We do not want housing to become out of reach of the incomes of the whole variety of people who populate our community. And that means re-examining previous policies in regards to land use, in regards to density, and the role of transportation, because housing, transportation, and tax policies are all interconnected. And one of the things that we've learned over the years is that while tax policies may drive decisions to allocate resources and expenditures, they're more important in that manner 
than they are in terms of determining capital investments, capital investments that are going to come from the private sector that ultimately create jobs. What's really the main source of, 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 of investment is very simple. It is the availability of a skilled and talented workforce. So the skills have to be there, that's the education, that is the job training continuum, and there has to be the housing. And so we've made adjustments in recent years. Fortunately, we had one progressive decision in the legislature in regards to changing TIF policy, which now allows us to extend the life of a TIF one additional year and take that fund and then use it anywhere in the city to help develop new housing. Secondly, we have changed the whole approach to using tax credits. It used to be that developers would come to the city, ask for a letter of support going to the legislature, in effect, state agency, the development agency, for a site that they had purchased or had an option to produce moderate income housing. And it was always a failure. Fortunately, much of that housing wasn't built. Now what we've done is the city has identified sites based on accessibility to food, to schools, to community services, networking transportation. We've identified those sites and we've told the development community, build there and we will enthusiastically support your application. And now suddenly, from being a city that was constantly rejected in terms of those tax credits, the rest of the state is complaining that we're getting too many. But in any case, uh, the point is that in working with the private sector, we're doing uh, a really good job in identifying locations that are not going to be a burden to the residents because of inadequate services. Um, let, me, let me just conclude with that. Thank you for the invitation to be here, and I really appreciate the discussion. Great. So thank you, Teresa, for volunteering, sort of, <laughs> to be the moderator. Thanks to all of you for coming, and thanks for the TV folks and reporters uh, for coming as well. And thanks especially to you, mayors, for driving down here, taking some time out of your busy schedules and all that. When it comes to being a mayor, I think you can tell I'm a rookie on the block, so to speak. You know, I've been mayor for almost two years. Paul, 20. Ron, eight. Yeah, so I figured I had a lot to learn by inviting you to come down here. I uh, certainly haven't been disappointed so far. So thank you for being here. So what are the challenges and opportunities facing Iowa City? Uh, many of you in the room, is this working all right? Many of you in the room uh, have a pretty good idea about that, but I'll give you my view. We're doing quite well in most respects. Home to the University of Iowa, we have a very low unemployment rate. Construction's been booming. Just last night, I spoke at the grand opening of our new Hilton Garden Inn, which is just about a half a block over that way. We've reduced our tax levy for six consecutive years. We have a AAA bond rating. We appear on many best of lists. Here I know, have a note to myself, which I cannot read. Um, 
Uh, what's that say? Oh, yeah, we've made great progress bouncing back from the 2008 flood, even though the Gateway Project is not quite finished. We have another, I don't know, nine months to go. We're also a great habitat for writers, as demonstrated by the fact that we're the home of the Writers' Workshop and the International Writing Program, and we're the first city in the U.S. to be named a UNESCO City of Literature. But the city's also been changing in a variety of ways, and those changes have produced diverse kinds of tensions within the community, some of which are familiar to, to you and your own cities. Our population is much more diverse now than it was a decade or two ago, and certainly far more diverse than it was when I arrived here in 1986. Instead of being overwhelmingly white, as it was back then, it's now much more multicultural. And by this, I mean our residents now include large numbers of Hispanics from Mexico and Central America, African Americans from other parts of the Midwest, students from China, 3,000 students, I believe, at the university, and other countries, refugees from Congo and Sudan, and others. Another tension, because construction's been booming, we're also experiencing considerable tension between those of us who are pro-development and those who treasure the historic features of our city, especially downtown, and don't want to lose that sense of historic character and identity. And I know some of you in the room are proponents of one side or the other, so, you know, challenges somehow to get them together. Also, many of our residents face considerable difficulty in finding housing they can afford and transportation they need. This includes University of Iowa students, who I spoke to just two nights ago, who account for roughly 48% of the general rental market in Iowa City and Coralville combined. And police community relations are a continuing topic of concern. We in Iowa City are fully committed to improving racial equity within city government and throughout our city, and we've been making considerable progress toward fulfilling that commitment. Still, we can do better, and we're continuing, continually working on that. In response to these and related challenges, our city council adopted a new strategic plan 21 months ago. And for our city, you know, our city council, our council manager form of government, where the city manager plays such a crucial role, a strategic plan is really a crucial thing because it's like the operating instructions for the next two years. So we adopted a new strategic plan 21 months ago, and this plan calls for fostering a more inclusive, just, and sustainable Iowa City, and for taking many specific actions that would fulfill that ambition. We've made great progress over the past two years toward completing many of the actions identified in that plan, especially with regard to improving racial equity, improving the affordability of housing for low to moderate income households, Producing another key part of this is uh, we are supporters of the of a new Housing First initiative here in our city, along with crisis intervention training, and then the possibility of creating a new access center that would enable people to have access to treatment for certain kinds of issues uh, instead of being sent to jail or sent to the emergency ward of the hospital. Uh, we're also producing a more vibrant and walkable urban core using all sorts of tools like Paul you were referring to and preparing a climate action plan to reduce our city's carbon emissions while also enabling us to minimize harm from extreme weather events in the future. Weather events like, say, I don't know, the 2008 flood or the one that hit Cedar Rapids and caused so much destruction. 
none of what we've been none of what we've done over the past two years has been easy. I'd say it's been very hard, actually. And I feel very good, as does do, do the other members of our city council, about what we've accomplished. But the past year has also been tremendously challenging for many, if not most, of our residents. And I can tell you, for me as a mayor, I feel like I'm running into a very strong wind. What might that wind be? In a guest opinion I wrote almost two years ago, I warned readers, this is a quote, we are not completely the masters of our own fate. We will encounter unexpected events, unquote. Sure enough, just, an event, just such an event took place last November, that is, a year ago. And the shift in political control produced by that election at both the national and state level has dramatically altered the context within which Iowa City government acts. And I, I'm really curious to get a sense of how this has played out in your cities. I know you would probably have differing views about this, uh, but it's been a challenge for us, perhaps because of that diversity that I referred to within our community. I have text here that is uh, pretty critical of our president's State of Union speech and many of his words and actions. But I think I'm not going to read that text right now. Um, there, there, um, there, there's a considerable amount of fear and anxiety in our city, and that's created major challenges for us. So I think I'll skip that and say instead, I love this country and its constitution, and I deeply respect the office of the president, but the president's appointments, words, and executive orders concerning immigration and refugees are completely, completely antithetical to the values that have made Iowa City such a great place to live. Openness, diversity, inclusivity, and creativity. Moreover, many of the president's executive orders and actions have been based on badly flawed factual claims, fake facts, if you will, or worse. A prominent writer recently observed, and I'm going to quote the writer, his name's David Frum, we are living through the most dangerous challenge to the free government of the United States that anyone alive has encountered. What happens next is up to you and me. Don't be afraid. This moment of danger can also be your finest hour as a citizen and as an American. So when I think about what's happening at the national level, and this ripples down to affect us within our city, I feel as though a very dark shadow has fallen over us and that we are on the cusp of entering a new dark period in the history of our country. All of our cities are located within one country, right? In this context, I believe we mayors are called upon to display moral clarity, courage, and an ability to strengthen bonds of community across racial, ethnic, religious, and political divides. That's a huge challenge. There's so much political <coughs> polarization in our state and in our country. We have to find some way to overcome, heal those divides. The situation's been different at the state level, 
but also concerning, at least to us in Iowa City. Proposed changes in Iowa state law came at a furious pace during last spring's legislative session. Fully controlled by one party, one political party, the state legislature adopted a mid-year cut in the state's budget, sharply constrained collective bargaining by public employee unions, preempted cities' abilities, ability to establish minimum wages in their jurisdictions, preempted cities' ability to ban the sale of fireworks, preempted cities' authority to regulate residential occupancy based on fam familial status, dramatically expanded individuals' access to guns, authorizes, authorized people who felt threatened to shoot and kill the allegedly threatening person, allowed people to bring guns into city council chambers, established new barriers to voting, and discussed adopting a bill that would punish, quote, sanctuary cities. And, and I, I noticed what you said, Paul, about preemption concerning right-of-way. I was just hearing about that from Casey. Well, Casey Cook's here somewhere. I was here, yeah, I was just hearing about that from you last night, Casey. Many of these new laws were adopted very quickly with little or no opportunity for public debate. This is the antithesis of democracy as I understand it. When the state's actions are combined with what's happening at the federal level, what I see is one-party rule. This worries me deeply. In response to the president's executive orders and some of the state legislature's proposed or enacted legislation, I found myself being called upon to make many speeches, writing guest opinions for newspapers, frequently being interviewed by radio, television, and print media reporters, and issuing a number of public proclamations and statements, acting on behalf of the people, the constituency of Iowa City. I felt called upon to do that. So for guidance and support, one of the things I did was turn to other mayors and joined with them in expressing views and concerns shared by millions of people in the United States and around the world. This included joining the U.S. Conference of Mayors and the Global Covenant of Mayors, which is focused on climate action. It also included attending meetings of the National League of Cities and the Mayor's Innovation Project. That's where uh, Paul and I had a chat about maybe him coming down here oh, and getting a phone call. Uh, so we were there, I don't know, four months ago or whatever it was and had a really good chat about various things. Uh, it, it, it also led uh, to me being invited to speak at the Mayor's Institute on City Design, which is all about land development and high quality physical design and the Association of European Schools of Planning. A real highlight for me was to be invited to go to Baghdad, Iraq, and have an opportunity to be invited by the mayor of, Iraq, of Baghdad and having a chance to visit with her, her staff, and uh, attend their Festival of Flowers. And then report back to the people of Iowa City about what I had seen and what I'd learned. So, all that's been very, for me, very nurturing and supportive and uh, gives me a sense of solidarity with other mayors around the world. Much more important, though, is that I find solidarity and support every day by encountering my fellow Iowa Citians and having face-to-face -face conversations with them almost anywhere in the city. That's a huge joy in my life, and I get great, I don't know, emotional support from it. All of this helps me know 
I'm not running alone into a very strong wind. I'm running with a beloved community at my side. So, now I know the whole tone of that was quite different from what the three of you said, but we all deal with issues at, at a very practical level, day to day, where we have to figure out how to do what the people of our city call upon us to do. And that takes different form from city to city. But we do it within a context, the context of state government, the context of the federal government, et cetera. So what we do differs from city to city. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you, mayors, for listening. So part of what um, the variation in the comments really does remind me of, and I can speak as a naive uh, uh, citizen, uh, just like many of you in the audience, is the layers of um, framework that determine what happens in a city and what one can do in a city and presumably as mayor from federal le legislation, state legislation and requirements to local legislation. And I'm um, curious, but at the same time, I'm really fascinated that certain points cut across all of your comments the challenge of housing. One that really surprised me is the challenge of finding a workforce, given that we, I deal with students who are always looking for jobs. Um, but also the growing diversity of cities. And I, w I was thrilled to hear from a couple, several of you, the value of arts and, and entertainment as part of what makes communities livable places, since I'm from a in English literature background. Um, I wonder what you all see across those layers and those possibilities. What is the most, the, what, what challenge do you think you affect your city at the moment most, but one that you think you see ways to wrestle with in addition to the comments that you've made so far? Uh, I, I would just say one, I mean, there's, we can go on and I'm pretty sure uh, something that would be stated, uh, I, I agree with as well. But one of the challenges we have uh, coming forward are things that are placed on city that cities that we really don't have any control on. And there's one particular item uh, with regards to it's called the uh, commercial rollback or the property backfill. Um, I think it's 2013 or 13 or 14. Um, it was an attempt on our state legislature to lower the overall um, uh, taxes placed on businesses to make Iowa a more affordable place for businesses and corporations to be here. So there was a lowering of that. With the lowering of that tax rate, that has an impact directly on the cities in which those businesses are located. And so there was an agreement from the legislature that they will backfill that amount of money or that increment that was given as a tax reduction for corporations and businesses. And now, um, given the, the monetary revenue collections on the state, cities may be forced to pay that money, to pay that money back. I don't know about our other communities, um, but that's that's a huge impact on the city of Waterloo if that rollback is not is not given back to our cities. And I think for us, um, given that public safety is 75 ish percent of our overall general fund budget, we're talking about real life impacts on the taxpayers in our communities. And we're probably looking at losing between 25 to 30 
jobs within our community based upon uh, whether or not we receive those dollars. This, this, is, this could potentially be one of the largest hits to uh, residential property owners that we've seen in a long time. So that, that's something that's on the horizon. We don't have a lot of control on it, but we have a voice and we want people to know. So please talk to your local legislators about uh, the impacts of changing that. Maybe I could share a couple of thoughts along those lines and get into one other subject. On the subject of taxation, there's the question of how much, but there's also the larger question of who pays and who benefits. And what's playing out on the national scene today, literally today, is a good example of that. Because what we're confronted with is then when all these decisions are enacted into law, hopefully they won't be, when you look at the distribution of the tax burden, it is going to shift to middle and lower income households. There's no denying that. The amount of reduction is so disproportionate between not the 3%, but the 1%, and all the rest of us. And this is actually a dilemma that we face regularly on a local basis, in part driven by state legislative decisions. Legislative decisions that dictate how much revenue is gained from residential property as opposed to commercial property and how that's defined. Much of this goes back to the inspiration of Grover Norquist, who said he wanted to shrink government down to the size where he could drown it in a bathtub. <laughs> and when you look at what Americans for, for uh, Prosperity say, driven by the, the checkbooks of the, of the Koch brothers, keep in mind that they believe that the main function of government is to protect private businesses so they may do as they please. That very, very tiny view of government places no responsibility for a series of hurricanes in the South or flooding in the Midwest. It places no responsibility for public decisions that have economic consequences for both the public and the private sector. Our city budget this year is $300 million. Next year, our operating budget will be a, a bit higher. About one half of that budget, $150 million, is divided between the police and the fire departments. Now, if your childhood was, was much like mine, your image of firefighters was rushing to put out fires. Your image of police officers was arresting really bad people who did things like rob banks. That is very little of what the modern police and fire departments do. We estimate conservatively that one-third of our city's police and fire expenditures go to dealing with the consequences of mental health 
and substance abuse challenges. When you see the ambulance go out, it's more likely it's going to the scene of a drug overdose, domestic violence, than it is, for example, to attend to someone who's just had a coronary event. When the police officers are going out there, they're very likely to do what we did for 10 hours yesterday, which is to address the needs of a veteran holed up in his house with several high-powered rifles and a gun suffering from PST, post-traumatic stress syndrome <clears throat> than they are to dealing with a bank robber. When I shared this with the uh, former governor of West Virginia, who now sits in the U.S. Senate, when we were discussing uh, the repeal recently of, of the Affordable Care Act, he turned to me and kind of smiled and he said, how did you do it? In West Virginia, it's 70%. So that's how our public resources are expended. And yet we're being strangled, not providing the treatment up front, which has enormous costs to the individual affected as well as uh, to the larger society. Why don't I go next, Ron, and then you can uh, you know, complete our cycle of four. <clears throat> Teresa, you ask about uh, the workforce, and there's a shortfall of workforce, and that's kind of puzzling here in Iowa City. Actually, uh, Mark Nolte, who's the director of the Iowa City Area Development Group, uh, tells us routinely that in the Iowa City area there's a shortfall, but it's a shortfall of particular kinds of skilled workers. So it could well be that the students coming out of the University of Iowa, at least not enough of them, are being trained for those specific categories of labor. Uh, it, it, there's more to it than that, but that, that's a possible connection. But to connect to the, the tax point, uh, many of you probably don't know this, but cities are creatures of the state. Cities do not appear in the U.S. Constitution. What does appear in the Constitution are states. So all the powers that cities have derive from what the state ledger, legislature grants to cities. In, Iowa, in, in the state of Iowa, some of our cities are what are known as home rule cities. That means we're granted broad authority to do all sorts of things unless powers are specifically preempted by the state. That's why I use that verb preemption, or the noun preemption, several times in my talk. So what the, 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 when the state legislature and governor decide to cut commercial and industrial property taxes, well, we just have to go along with that. We, we can't really do anything about it. One of the consequences of, well, and we've been preparing for the, you, you pointed to the problem of backfill, Quentin, and, and rightly so. I'm happy to say that uh, as a result of the good work on the part of our prior city manager and our current city manager, Jeff Fruin, we've been preparing for that fadeaway of the backfill for several years now. Nonetheless, it will eventually have an effect on us that will be harmful. 
but we just have to adjust to it if that's in fact what happens. One of the consequences of that the choices about reducing commercial and industrial property taxes is that more and more of the tax burden has been shifted to residential property taxpayers, in Iowa City at least. So we could easily show you a chart that looked at from your point of view shows you know, commercial and industrial property tax portion of Iowa City property taxes declining and the residential portion increasing. Ron, your shot. <clears throat> yeah, I, I would echo some of the similar uh, comments by the mayors. You know, oftentimes debate on subject matter does get down to who pays and who doesn't uh, pay. But I, I think more so we have to focus on who's deciding. And I'm one that strongly believes in, in local mm -hmm. control, allowing the local elected officials to make the decisions. We're the closest to the people, and the people have much greater access to their, their council and their mayor than they do their state legislature or even the, the national uh, congress. But we, we see this uh, trend, I feel it is. Uh, maybe it's accelerating, maybe it isn't, maybe it's always been there. And the legislature and the state certainly never liked the federal government telling them what to do, but then they in turn do exactly to the local governments what was just done uh, to them. You know, if the, if the city of Dubuque decides they want to ban plastic bags in their community and they want to experiment with that ban, I'm okay with them. If that's what their mayor and council want to do and they've talked about it in their community and their residents are okay with it and those businesses that have traditionally used plastic bags, they should be able to have a, a chance to do that. So for the legislature to come in and ban that and say, you can't even experiment with a plastic ban in your community. We're going to ban it uh, for the whole state. You know, I, I think that's wrong. Now, I don't know if it's right or wrong for Cedar Rapids to do that. Haven't thought about the issue to that degree, but from a local control standpoint, I have great respect for the local officials making those decisions. And the mayor highlighted five or six issues uh, this past year that were taken away the rights of the local government, which is really the rights of the, of the community, to make their decisions uh, locally. And so at the same time you're getting uh, restrictions on what local government can do, you're getting more demands from the citizens to act. The citizens get frustrated with any lack of progress at the federal level on a particular issue, whatever it is, choose and nothing gets done on that issue, so they turn to the state government, and then nothing gets done on that issue, so they turn to the local government uh, as the, the last resort. And so we end up uh, trying to grapple with issues that cities traditionally haven't uh, grappled with because of demand uh, from the public at the same time uh, restrictions. And when success uh, from the local people uh, they start making progress on an, on an issue, um, and the legislature doesn't like it, then that's why they, they come up with the ban. I think a lot of it stems from the advent of the strength of special interest groups over the last uh, 
20 years and how they dominate uh, public policy at the federal level, whether it's Democrat groups or Republican groups, and then end up dominating uh, public policy uh, at, the, at the state level. See, it's really hard for the special interest groups to organize in 900 cities and uh, 99 counties. So it's easier for them to focus on a legislature and convince 51 and 26 people to uh, you know, preempt something. Uh, mayor, so uh, that's a bigger discussion on the role of of uh, special interests. But at this time, at this point in time, it hasn't seeped down to the local government, and uh, I hope it doesn't. We wanted to be sure that people in the audience also had a chance to ask questions, and I'll be happy to run around with the mic. Um. Thanks you all for being here. Uh, one or two concerns that I haven't really heard addressed is affordable housing in your communities. Uh, no one used the word affordable. Uh, and also, what your city is doing to come into compliance with the American Disabilities Act. Well, I'll start out with, with, with Madison. Uh, we're pretty much in compliance. Um, my problem is we're going backwards. For example, it's, uh, first, how, with housing, uh, I, I'd say we're in pretty good shape, except we just don't have enough. And that's what I was alluding to earlier in terms of the initiatives that we're, we're launching uh, to, to add to the housing stock and at all levels particularly using, as I said, TIF and tax credits uh, to, to the maximum that we can. We were probably the first city in the country back in 1974 to build housing specifically designed for accessible, ac accessibility for those with disabilities. Uh, Caribous Apartments, I think, were finished in 75, maybe 76, and we are now uh, looking to add to that housing stock, as well as having the normal requirements in, in all other housing. In transportation, we are taking major step backwards. Uh, we had probably one of the finest uh, transit systems in the United States with not curb-to-curb -curb service, but with door-to-door -door service operated by the city's uh, trans transit department. Because of funding decisions made at the state and the federal level, we are now basically going to have to drop the program. It's created a $3 million hole in our budget, which is simply uh, impossible to, to close. Uh, the service is going to be turned over, administered through, from the state through the counties. Uh, we're the last holdout in the state and it's going to affect be privatized. And as a private operation, they are obviously committed to making as much money as possible. And so the kind of services that we are providing are going to disappear. And it's not just the question of the accessibility from one point to the other. It's not just a question of the quality of the ride. It's not just the question of the quality of the driver but it's also things that most folks don't look at, such as uh, 
the availability of the vehicles, the scheduling of the vehicles, how many days and hours in advance, whether it's for a medical appointment or to go shopping, does the, the, the transit rider uh, need, need, need to uh, uh, notify the, 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 op the operation? So when we talk again about um, Grover Norquest, I want to shrink government down to the size where shrink it down where I can drown it in a bathtub. This is the consequence of it. And this is the direction. And it's not going to get better uh, with either the present uh, leadership in the Congress or, for that matter, in either of our state legislators. All right, just real quickly, it's one twelve already. Um, we've used some of the same traditional programs within our community development office. Um, we have um, worked to uh, pay some of the equity in some of the houses if you qualify for some of those programs. But with the programs we have, one thing that I want to talk about is the ability for people to be able to stay into their house, stay in their houses. Uh, we put together a number of programs and recently was awarded uh, a $3 million lead grant to the city of Waterloo to help make some of those improvements, to make sure that houses are safe and that they're actually lead free. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier about a model that we're working with now um, to recreate some of the culture and the history of neighborhoods by um, fixing up houses, creating new housing. And we're hoping that this is going to be the prerequisite to doing this in other neighborhoods. We have ho older housing stock. Uh, it is a challenge within our local community, um, but we're addressing that and been aggressive on that in the last two, last several years. But just also with the uh, Americans with Disability Act, and I think they say the biggest room you have is the room for improvement. Um, well, we just learned that as well. Um, we were having challenges with regards to our bus stops and making sure that they were adequate, that they were compliant, um, that they were shoveled and taken care of. So that's one thing that was a bitter pill to swallow. I don't know if I should have used that with the OP. But um, we have, we've been challenged to work with over 120, 130 different just benches within our community to make sure that transportation uh, is accessible to some parts of our community. So that's one that we had to work on as of late. For Cedar Rapids, we have a, a disability commission that handles uh, any type of complaint or inquiries. And just recently, we entered into a settlement agreement with the Department of Justice at the US level as relates to an audit. They came into the community and did audit of uh, our facilities. Example, our, our baseball uh, stadium, uh, the, some of the countertops, concession tops, weren't uh, wheelchair accessible. So we've made, made some changes there for the city specifically on some of our infrastructure, uh, we entered into a five-year agreement for curb cuts. It's gonna be a, a large investment on our standpoint from a community. Uh, all the old neighborhoods that didn't have curb cuts were in the process over a five-year period. So we've worked with the Department of Justice uh, in that settlement. On the housing issue, um, because our community uh, lost 1,200 homes uh, after the flood. They were bulldozed, and uh, some of it was recycled, but most of it went to, to the landfill. Uh, 
And that was a, a housing stock where the average price of a home was $72,000. You can imagine you can't really build a, a new house for, for $72,000. So that was a big challenge for us to replace that housing stock. It took us about five years just to replace the housing stock that was lost uh, uh, in the flood. And because uh, the increased cost of building a, a new home, we had to come up with some uh, clever ways to help people uh, get back into a home. So we had some down payment assistance uh, programs uh, for residents that if they stayed in the home for five years, originally it was 10 years, but uh, five years that uh, they would get a, a forgivable loan. So I think whenever a community uh, can you know, put together the resources, there are some uh, ways that they can make housing more affordable. Harry, I think you know that we have a very ambitious affordable housing action plan consists of maybe 14 different elements, one of which is land banking, another is to modify our TIF tax increment financing policy so that uh, if you have housing in your development uh, and the development gets TIF support, it has to have a minimum percentage of affordable units. We have an inclusive housing ordinance for the area south of Burlington, the Riverfront Crossings District. We've, in our last two budgets, and I think our forthcoming budget, we've been putting money uh, into, uh, uh, made it into a line item, putting money, uh, directing money toward the uh, Johnson County um, Housing Trust Fund. And did I mention land banking? So lots of things that, you know, we're already doing. You know a lot more about how well we're complying with ADA than I do, so I think I'll just leave that one alone for right now. <laughs> I don't even know if this is actually working. Is it? it uh, is. Thanks. Yeah. Given our time, what I could do is, if there are several questions, is let people ask several questions, and then folks up front can answer as they're most invested or, or knowledgeable about that question. Are there other questions? Um, first of all, I uh, want to give some feedback uh, to you, Mr. Mayor. I'm an international. I was an international student from. Yeah. South Africa, and I'm encouraged by all of your positions in looking to welcome folks from all over the place. Um, <clears throat> and then also a question on what the role, uh, what you see as the role of cities in not only welcoming folks from all over, but protecting them in this environment and uh, making them feel safe to come forward, whether it be in crime prevention or in things such as simple as employment. Uh, I run a radio show uh, out of KRUI called Merge Radio. Uh, here uh, with in partnership with ICAD and some feedback for you. I was talking to an international writing program, uh, writing residence from Pakistan, who's a woman. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I met her. Yes, uh, Ramsha Ashraf. And she was scared to come to America, um, <coughs> at least her family was, in this environment that uh, we have politically right now. But she did say when she got here, uh, that the people, as you said, make up this place and the space. And so she was very encouraged to be part of that. Uh, and so in that vein, uh, the question I'm asking to the whole panel is, what's the role of the city in making more immigrants feel safe in coming to these cities and, and, and thriving despite the environment that exists? Let me take a quick shot at that. Uh, one of the things we strive to do is reach out to diverse communities our Congolese community, our Sudanese community, other communities within the city who feel threatened or endangered. We want to make sure they know who to contact and how to get in touch with us. 
and to build strong relationships with them. In fact, building strong relationships, strengthening those relationships is a very important way of ensuring that the public safety of all the residents of this city can be achieved. It, because if people feel like they cannot report crimes that they observe or see committed against them, then the whole community will be in greater danger of having crime committed. So we, as a matter of public safety, if nothing else, we have to have good, strong connections with diverse communities in our city. Um, just a quick question uh, relating to home rule. I mean, it's one of the ironies in a period of municipal revitalization, which I think is reflected in all of your comments about your cities, that the constraints on home rule seem to be even greater and, more, and increasingly uh, restrictive. Um, cities ought to be able to do what they, ought, what they want to do and what their citizens want to do. His, historically, home rule has been a flexible domain. I mean, there have been times when cities have acquired uh, waterworks and electric, uh, produced their own electricity or taken over cable television. Um, it really is a political question, and it is a question of how cities can more effectively mobilize their political influence at a state level to assert these rights uh, to, a, to a wider uh, realm of home, home rule. What do you think cities can do uh, as a coalition of interests on a statewide basis to better um, articulate and ultimately uh, pursue um, their interests uh, and the interests of their citizens? And to what extent does citizen action, direct citizen action, have a significant political role? We've seen in Iowa City with the minimum wage restriction the state has imposed that uh, through a, a local organization, the Center for Worker Justice, we've been able to push back and in a way get, uh, get gets businesses to comply with what has now been prohibited by the state uh, on a voluntary basis. That's not an ideal solution, but at least it reflects the capacity of citizens to act in the face of a state that is uh, not acting in their interests. Since World War II, the Republican Party has been the leader in advocating for local control up until the last decade. Now, if you take the concept of home rule, what I would suggest so we have some kind of intellectually honest view of the subject is that the state preemption ought to be to set minimum standards of safety, whether we're talking building codes or we're talking landlord-tenant relations or, or any of the other myriad of areas that they enter. Because there are plenty of us who find we're on the wrong side of preemption these days. I'll give just one example. We had another rape yesterday uh, this last week in Madison by an Uber driver. We have gone over this many times in recent years. The state preempted us. We are no longer able, as we are with taxi cab drivers, to have police background checks. And I won't go into all the other issues involving Uber, but 
this is another example of where basically an industry has bought our legislatures. The solution is very simple. We need regime change. We need to change the Wisconsin legislature. We need to change the Iowa legislature. We need to change the North Carolina legislature and dismiss them not because of preemption, but because they're hypocrites and they're not to be trusted. They are untrustworthy. That's the solution. We can't do anything at the local level. I'm going Tuesday to Baltimore for a discussion specifically on preemption. And another area where this obviously is affecting us uh, is in the question of immigration. And I just want to say that repeatedly that word safety is what the whole immigration discussion ought to be about. Sanctuary cities is really a false dichotomy because there technically is no such sure. thing as sanctuary. What it is is safety for everybody within the boundaries of our communities, regardless of where they were born, and to ensure that safety. One last question. Casey. Um, we do a rent study. We've been doing it for the last 20 years. And we look at all the, the apartments in Iowa City and North Liberty and Coralville and, and see how much new construction there is and try to anticipate what the uh, vacancies are going to be. And our expectation is that by the end of 2018, vacancies will go from the current levels between 4 and 5 percent up to about 9 to 10 percent. Our thought is, is that if you're looking at affordable housing, I'm always very skeptical of new affordable housing. I think that's kind of a contradiction in terms, not, not that we shouldn't pursue it. But when I talk to the people at Shelter House and I find out the entrepreneurial ways that they use to coordinate with landlords to place these people, and the possibilities for some uh, additional support from the, from the city to ensure deposits or, or that kind of thing. The opportunity for creating affordable housing has never been better in Iowa City and Coralville than it will be over the next two years. So I, I just want you to be alert to that opportunity, I guess. Interesting idea. I know Jeff Ruins in the house, so he probably heard that. Could I say one quick thing about the previous question? Um, and then me too. Uh, uh, Mayor Hart and Mayor Corbett and I are part of the Metro Coalition in the state of Iowa. That's a coalition of the 10 largest cities in the state. So members of the coalition meet periodically and have phone conversations and that kind of thing to talk about, oh, priorities for the coming legislative session and that kind of thing. I think that's a really good thing, Shell. I mean, it's really helpful and all that. But it, it runs slam bang into the limit that Paul Soglin just referred to, which is you can, you can only influence so much. And then you, if, you can't, if you can't influence the legislators who are there, uh, you're stuck with whatever decisions they come up with. So citizen action, be active politically, yep. vote, support your candidates. Yep, and, and, and advocate. Um, there's also a group, uh, the Iowa League of Cities as well, and that's all of the uh, cities across the entire state. Um, and one of their first, one is five different um, legislative priorities, local control, economic development, financial stability, continuation of the backfield, public safety, water 
and wastewater infrastructure and pensions as well. I think where the challenge comes is having our citizens understand the real impacts that are made on the state level to your lives currently. When we talk about the backfill and those impacts, do you really grasp what can actually happen from those decisions? Or I think we all had a great example of fireworks uh, this past past year. So understanding those state level decisions and how they impact your lives on a on a daily daily day to day basis is highly important. I think it's also important to understand how um, rural legislators, when they view uh, cities and cities saying we have uh, all these needs and challenges and they come to our communities and they see all this growth they see all this uh, construction and then they go back to their own home communities where in many cases they've lost their schools so you here in Iowa City are just passed a bond issue for hundred and ninety million dollars you're going to be building new schools and expanding those schools and opportunity and excited about the, the growth of that. They're losing their schools. They're consolidating their schools. You have a ped mall with exciting locally owned businesses. They've lost a lot of their Main Street uh, businesses. If you got time in the next week, drive through a couple of small towns, maybe not around here in Johnson County, Go to Wachir, drive through Wachir, and you'll see that most of their buildings along their main street going through their town are, are vacant. And so they've, they've lose their schools, they lose their small business, uh, they're losing their you know, young people to the urban areas. And they see their challenges and problems much different than they see a city's challenge is problem. They say yeah. we you should we should be so lucky to have some of the challenges that that you have. So there really is this uh, disconnect between many parts of the rural uh, Iowa and the urban areas that are thriving. So there's pockets of growth, but it's not statewide. Remember, 73 counties out of 99 are lost population since 2010, and many of those have been continuing uh, to lose. So I think it's fair to continue to challenge them to help the cities continue to grow, but it's also important for the urban uh, people to recognize some of the challenges that uh, the rural parts of Iowa are facing. Can I just suggest two books on that very subject, which is, I think, the heart of, of the whole discussion and where it's coming from. One is by Crawley, um, The Politics of Resentment, which is about Wisconsin, and the other one is Strangers in Their Own Land by Hotchkiss, which is about uh, New Orleans, the Lake Charles, Louisiana area. And both books uh, really examine the feelings of people in economically distressed areas and give a good explanation or insight as to why they make choices which some of us might think is very contradictory to their own interests. And I'd like to recommend another book. It's called <laughs> Beyond Promises. It's by our very own mayor sitting right here at the table, and it gives a local perspective over uh, challenges we face. He can do it, but I'm... <laughs> <laughs> 
So, <clears throat> thank you. Um, we're at the end of our time, and I just want to say um, that I suspect many in the audience share with me a sense that we've heard about really important uh, challenges. We've heard about some great news from small towns, from small cities. Um, but the thing that really struck me is the passion of all the mayors and their commitment to the cities and your concern for the places you live. And that's what I'll go home with today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.